This episode is dedicated to the memory of Ronnie Kochny. We are deeply grateful for all he taught us during his many years of partnership with Grand Canyon National Park. Grand Canyon, where hidden forces shape our ideas, beliefs, and experiences. And experiences. Join us as we uncover the stories between the canyon's colorful walls. Probe the depths and add your voice. Add your voice for what happens, what happens next. next at Grand Canyon. At Grand Canyon. Welcome. Okay. This is Jessica. <laughs> this is Emily. And this is and this. this is behind the scenery. Every year you would have these big floods that would just cover everything over and make a new floodplain. It's only when you stop the sediment supply that those things start becoming available enough to see. And that's the legacy that we're looking at is all of those things, all of those thousands of years of people living around along the river and they every year they would come back, there would be a flood, they'd come back, they'd plant, they'd do whatever, you know, next year it would flood again, they'd come back, there was a new flat surface because everything was buried in sand again. Every year was an annual cycle and it just kept happening for thousands of years until 1963. And then that stopped. What stopped at the Colorado River in 1963 that was so important? Like rivers and bodies of water around the world, People congregate around this river. For thousands of years, it has been home to multiple native tribes. They watched the river, sat on the bank, and listened to the water flowing. For over a hundred years, Green Canyon has been protected as a national park. The mission statement of the Park Service is to preserve and protect this place for future generations. But in the process, some people's voices have been excluded. The people who have lived here for thousands of years. Hello, I'm Kate, and this is the second episode in our two-part series on dams in Grand Canyon. In today's episode of Behind the Scenery, we'll explore how the installation of the Glen Canyon Dam impacted Grand Canyon's traditionally associated tribes and the sacred and ancestral grounds in the river corridor. One of the reasons I found this story is because in my job, I'm a ranger who lives at the bottom of the canyon. I work several river miles below the dam. Every day, I go on a walking patrol and I say hello to the Colorado River. One of my favorite spots by the beach is an archaeological site of Ancestro Puebloans. I like to imagine the families who used to have the Colorado River as their backyard. Well, they took stones from the heart of the canyon and beautifully crafted them into pink and black walls. Now we can only see the foundations of the plaza, living spaces, a ceremonial kiva. When the Pueblo was complete, people would have been lounging on the rooftop. There they would have been able to watch their kids playing on the beach. In today's world, there are plenty of people still playing on the beach, but there are also river trips in blue, yellow, or orange rafts, sometimes even a small wooden boat and they pull in to what is now called Boat Beach. Once the dam was put in, beaches like Boat Beach started eroding away 
the canyon was not only losing its beaches, but also the archaeological sites along the river became in danger of being lost forever. Jan Balsam was the park's archaeologist from 1984 through 1995. She was in the field documenting how cultural sites by the river were being impacted. She has since filled several leadership positions in the park, including senior advisor to the superintendent, and Jan is a lead advisor on cultural resources at Grand Canyon. Recreational boaters on the Colorado River and Grand Canyon were sitting on beaches watching the water come up and down because they operated the dam at a, um, a way they called a cash register dam, but when people turned on their lights, they would let more water out. When people turned off their lights, they would stop the water flow. So you had wide fluctuations that would be in the neighborhood of 20 to 30,000 cubic feet per second changes in a day that would result in 10 or 15 feet downstream of stage change. 10 to 15 feet is a huge change within 24 hours, especially if you're a boater and it's below where you made your home for the night. If you're new to the canyon, Think about narrow granite walls rising above you. On your side, sandy beaches line parts of the canyon. You dock your boat, set up camp to sleep. What you didn't realize was the dam caused the river level to rise the height of a one to two story building while you were sleeping. As archaeologist for the park, I was most concerned about looking at um, the archaeological resources and how the dam flows were affecting the integrity of those properties. Unfortunately, the dam was created before key environmental legislation was in place. The National Environmental Policy Act wouldn't come about until three years later, and it requires federal agencies to complete an environmental review to assess potential impacts of a project. The dam was excluded from this environmental assessment until the Bureau of Reclamation had the need to replace the eight generators that powered the dam in 1982. Scientists, river runners, members of the public, and environmental groups began to push for scientific studies that can measure the adverse impacts of the dam. In 1989, a grassroots project pushed for an environmental impact statement. So, as the park's archaeologist, I then became a member of the EIS writing team for the Glen Canyon Dam environmental impact statement that was done. In com combination with that, we had to begin doing the archaeological inventory survey then of the Colorado River Corridor, and we spent the better part of uh, nine months with the crews working under a cooperative agreement with Northern Arizona University to do the 100% uh, inventory of the River Corridor. That resulted in a uh, documenting 475 properties in the nearshore environment from the dam down to the lake. 475 remnants of homes, agricultural structures, religious sites, and petroglyphs of the people who had lived by the Colorado River. Jan was curious about who these places were important to, the people who felt that these places were in the family. Jan did something unusual for the Park Service and archaeology at the time. She looked at these places and realized that their descendants still live near Grand Canyon. She invited them into the conversation. And a piece of that um, 
was bringing our tribal colleagues down onto the Colorado River so that they could help us design the research module, how we were going to do this, so that they understood what we were looking for and that we could understand from them things that we may need to be looking for. And it was the first time, and I didn't realize this at the time, but it was the first time that we anybody had done a river trip where we had invited the traditionally associated people back into the canyon. And that led to a whole other legacy of the tribe's involvement. We were doing a project to build a parking lot up on the East Rim, and we had an archaeological site there. I knew enough from my studies that, and working at the State Historic Preservation Office that we needed to contact the tribes. We sent out letters to the um, five tribes that we work with, and the entire Havasupai Tribal Council showed up in the superintendent's office. And the superintendent at the time was a fellow named uh, Jack Davis. He looked at me and he said, I think we need to have somebody who does tribal liaison. I guess that will be you. <laughs> and so I added that to my portfolio of, of responsibilities. So we started working along the river, and we knew that there was enough. The archaeology was um, pretty extraordinary, even the limited amount that we knew about. Uh, we contacted tribes early on, let them know we were going to be doing this, got them engaged with at least that portion of the project. And also, as we began moving towards the environmental impact statement, Lujan identified in 1989, we're going to do this EIS. We started having an EIS writing team. And upon the insistence of a couple of us, um, we convinced Bureau of Reclamation that they needed to include the tribes as part of the cooperating agencies, part of the writing team, because these were resources of concern to the tribes, not just to us as the National Park Service or to the American public, who are all responsible to. But even at that time, we knew the Hopi, for example, have significant histories in the canyon. The Navajo border uh, the river for 60-plus miles. Uh, the Havasupai, the Wallapai to the west, we knew that they have ancestral areas in Southern Paiute to the north. So, you know, we worked with reclamation. It wasn't something they had ever done, um, and it was challenged them a little bit uh, to... Think about a different way of inclusion. Jan found that the best way to assess the cultural impacts of the dam was to consult the direct ancestors of the people who had histories extending back sometimes thousands of years in the canyon. Archaeologists learn more by listening to the tribes. And certainly from a tribal perspective, only you as a tribal member can know if the traditional resource that you are concerned about is doing okay. Is it does it need help? Is it still as functional as it was? Are the, the spring sources that you rely on for a traditional purpose still functioning the way they have, or have there been a change? And only you would know that. Um, so it's important for the traditional people to be able to come down and evaluate within their expertise how well a specific resource is adjusting to this changed environment. It's funny when you think about some of the political discord between the agencies, the federal approach to Indian law and policy, um, the differences amongst the tribes in terms of land base and resources and a lot of those things. But for whatever reason, when you talk about the Grand Canyon, everybody comes together because they all have common histories here. They don't there's a recognition that everyone has a vested interest in ensuring that this place continues. So I think that because of the place and the way in which we included the tribes from the very beginning, um, 
with the archaeological survey saying, we understand that this is your history. We want you to help us preserve these things, that it was a general opening to all of them to participate with us. And that followed through into the formal NEPA process as them being part of the writing team. Six Native American tribes contributed to the environmental impact statement that was finalized in 1995. That didn't happen without hard work from certain tribal leaders. While Jan pushed for inclusion of tribal voices at a park service level, it was a greater challenge for tribes to become involved in projects that involved multiple federal agencies. We have an incredible opportunity to hear from the director of the Hopi Cultural Preservation Office for 30 years. He's been involved with adaptive management in Grand Canyon since around 1989. Uh, my name is uh, Lee Kawanusuma. His success helping to manage the river had a challenging start. Well, to be frank, nobody came to the Hopi, uh, much less to any tribe that is currently engaged with the whole history of the dam. And um, I just happened to, I believe, back around um, early 1990, uh, read in the uh, Flagstaff Daily uh, Sun that there was uh, a meeting on the on the Glen Canyon Dam and by the Bureau of Reclamation. And I was reading the newspaper, and I just out of curiosity, I didn't know I, went, I didn't know really what it was about, except that you know it it the picture the dam up there, but I never realized that it wasn't dealing with the whole canyon. Mm. But that was how I got whiff of something happening. So I went to that meeting. It was an evening meeting. I sat there listening to it, and there was a whole series of presentations on on jump-starting the EIS. As the initial introductions came around, all the federal agencies, of course, introduced themselves. And the Bureau of Indian Affairs was introduced from Phoenix. And, and I learned later that they were representing all 19 tribes in the state of Arizona. And I, I sat there, and and actually at that meeting, I was probably the only native person there. You know, and I was kind of bewildered. And and that's when I began to say, uh, we got to learn more about this, what's going on this EIS. And so I got some a lot of uh, handouts then, you know, some background information. And I home a whole bunch of that and um began to read it and it was indeed about the grand uh, grand canyon dam but what was interesting to me was that the whole issue was again the water releases and the effects on the ecosystem mm -hmm. and and i said this has to be of interest to the tribe I mean, it is an interest to the tribe. And then the next meeting, again, I was in Phoenix, so I went to that one. And by that time, I had reasonable assurance that the tribe, meaning the tribal council, wanted to actively participate. Mm -hmm. 
So I finally had um, the floor given to me and I introduced myself. And at that time, I was still the only tribal representative. And I said, the Hopi tribe will engage in this whole EIS, but independent of the, of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and their representation of other tribes were, I believe, quite capable of representing ourselves. I went before the tribal council and got a resolution declaring that we were going to be a cooperating agency. We would have that status. So I remember at the next meeting, I introduced that resolution, gave it to them, and they gave me a seat. And the chairman had wrote to them that I would be the Hopi tribe's voting member. So I became the first tribal voting member. And this had established the Hopi tribe as a stakeholder in the Glen Canyon Adaptive Management Program. Different stakeholders submitted scientific projects that would work on collecting data, monitoring resources, and restoring the ecosystem. One of the solutions was starting river monitoring trips. Beginning in the 1990s, river monitoring trips were initially funded by the Bureau of Reclamation to mitigate the damage that the dam had caused. Imagine that you have created a scientific proposal to study the Colorado River, and now it's your job to float down the river for days or weeks so you can do studies and collect data downstream of the dam. Maybe your study is about how sediments are eroding beaches or impacting cultural sites, or maybe you're studying how the changed ecosystem impacted wildlife populations. In the 90s, I, 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 I was trying to figure out what we're going to do. And, and then I finally said, well, looks like this EI is going to require a lot of science, a lot of research. And by golly, I got to determine what our, what our focus was going to be. And it was the whole gamut of all three sciences, you know, biological, natural, and cultural. And of course, our forte, even though I was just beginning the office at that time, was going to be culture. Even though I kind of was already thinking they're all interconnected. I believe we have the most extensive science, scientific reports based on our research design and then later how we identify certain research areas as we traveled from the first time that uh, we started going down there. Tribal monitoring trips began to happen every year. And in order to monitor what happened on the river, time had to be spent on the water. So by 91, I believe around that time we got our funding. And we uh, got our first river trip down there. And, and uh, we had asked, uh, and that time I began to know Jan Balsam too. I think she was just getting started as well too, about the same time. I think maybe, a, I think she started with a grandkid about 88, mm -hmm. uh, two that thereabouts. She went with us. Because uh, one of our, our uh, efforts was to investigate as many archaeological uh, sites down there. 
All right, so that was our first attention down there. Mm -hmm. And from Lee's Ferry all the way to Phantom Ranch, there's 300 plus archaeological sites all the way from there. A lot of it clearly ancestral Hopi because of the Hopi pulp, uh, uh, polychrome and yellowware down there. And it, it, it matches our traditions in there because the Hopis, they say they traded with other clans down the Grand Canyon from here, you know. And and they, they say that the Wupatki people from, from Flagstaff, they traded with the Grand Canyon people. You know, things like that are traditions. So when you go down there and begin to learn about the archaeology, the archaeologists will tell us, well, there's evidence of, of Hopi yellowware here. Could it be trade items? Could it be actually visitations by people? Probably both. The Hopi helped archaeologists gain a bigger picture of the rich relationships that tribes had across Arizona and the vast trading networks that were connected to the bottom of Grand Canyon. So over time, our reputation grew that we knew so much about the history of the Grand Canyon culturally. The archaeological sites, the petroglyphs we were interpreting left and right down there. Our values in terms of the erosion of effects of erosion on burials, what that causes us to have to now rebury only a partial of a remain, right? Those were emotional. So the old men, of course, were learning, and the Hopi trip just grew. And everybody wanted to be on the Hopi trips. After they go through the river trip and learning about what we do down there and the science we're doing, the cultural resources down there, you know, coming out, a lot of the new times are, they have a better, better perspective on how those are being affected by the dam operations. But they're pretty consistent. And so I, I think that's that's um indication that the Hopi culture is is unwavering. It 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 you know, our villages are a thousand years old. The Hopi still have a full twelve month ceremonial cycle. You know. And today we're going into the women's ceremonies right now. So it never ends for us. It never ends. We're always in the Kiva. So so I think it's, it reflects the vibrancy of the Hopi culture. And we're fortunate to be able to say that. The Hopi people and other Grand Canyon tribes continue to go on monitoring trips on the Colorado River to this day. And this has helped the Park Service and tribes listen to each other's interests and concerns. Uh, first of all, my name is uh, Ronnie Kachini. I am uh, 54 years old, and I am the head rain priest uh, here for uh, the Zuni tribe. And uh, we're federally recognized as the Zuni tribe, but we call ourselves Ashui. And I am the traditional uh, leader for the Ashui people. I'm also a head medicine man for my society, the Uhuhuqua Society. 
And I've been a medicine man since I was seven years old. I was initiated back in uh, 1972. And growing up with the elders in my society, staying in the medicine house, I learned a lot. I obtained a lot of knowledge that I hold to this day. I hold these prayers. They're, they're not written in a book. We're, we're not taught uh, with um, uh, electrical devices like tape recorders and such. All the prayers are taught orally. And if you have the heart, you'll pick up all the prayers word for word. And it's really hard for some people because the, the language is in the old ancient language, which our people were speaking in the time when they emerged from the Grand Canyon, Ruben Falls Grand Canyon. And that's the place of our uh, emergence. Chimikana Ketea, referring to the Grand Canyon as the emergence place. Although the Zuni people considered the Grand Canyon their emergence place, at that time, federal agencies did not realize how central the canyon was to the Zuni history. And back in the day, like in the 50s, 60s, in Grand Canyon Park, you know, why are Zunis interested in this place? They live far away. They live in New Mexico. No one told them until they started going on these uh, monitoring trips. And that's when it opened up the eyes to the, the park. At that time, many archaeologists had the hypothesis that these people had abandoned the area, maybe because of war or a drought. These people that that have left all these uh, sites, their homes, they did not abandon them. They were used time and time again. And archaeologists believed that these were a whole group of people that came and built these homes and they left and a whole different group of people came and occupied these places and left. Actually, these were the same people that came on their great migration. All the Pueblo tribes were on a vast migration searching for their destinations on Mother Earth. And it was a very very spiritual world back then. Things were shown. Spirits showed them things that, that we hold today as our religion, our traditions. And these places are were never abandoned. And we were, were trying to veer away from using the word um, ruins and Anasazi sites. We're veering away from those terms because that, that's not the Pueblo way. We call them, uh, in our Zuni uh, language, Ino de Guau and Heshotao, 
The Zuni people started going down to view and monitor these sacred spaces, especially the religious leaders of the tribe. This first fell on Ronnie's grandfather, and when he passed away, that leadership passed to Ronnie. I've never seen the Grand Canyon uh, until uh, 1980, uh, 1998 is when I took my first monitoring trip down the river, and um, it was the most humbling experience I've ever had in my life. On one special site visit, Ronnie was able to look at the rock art and interpret what that history meant to his tribe. There's a, a ten or there's like three large boulders there that, that there's like lines going around, zigzags and squares just leading out to places, and I was looking at it, and I'm like, I don't think this is the canyon, the map of the canyon, see, wow. the river, and these are places that get to certain place or uh, maybe a, a collecting area or a village. And I was looking at it, and it, it just, like, came out, you know, it's the map of the river. Wow. Oh, wow. huge boulders. There's like a constant line going across the boulders. And then there's other petroglyphs on there that have the two individuals with their tails connected together. And uh, in our prayers at the very end, even though um, no matter if you're a rain priest, a medicine man, a Kiva leader, Popka leader, all these societies, even the commoners, in our prayers at the very end, we we say uh, to hold on to each other tight, mm-hmm. uh, a bond that, that will be, never be broken, always hold on to each other. And, and these two individuals with their tails connected, that just, that just floors me because that's that part of our prayer. It's talking about our prayer. And when we read history, we read it in a book. But our ancestors left it on boulders, on cliff walls, all over the Southwest, all over the, the United States. You know, it's not just the Zuni people, it's other tribes that left their mark. Ronnie talked about another rock art panel that is named the Whitmore panel. This panel tells the story of his people's origin in the Grand Canyon. This panel is a popular stop for river trips. River runners would hike a narrow path from the river to the cliffs, where there was a smooth rock face painted with red figures this petroglyph is telling us how our people came up from the fourth underworld. And we're trying to uh, change change the name from Wheatmore Panel to the Zuni Emergence Panel. And as you know, that, that takes a lot of time, 
Um, it has to go through all these uh, channels to to uh, to make that change. Zuni elders noticed that the trail was too close to the panel, and people were causing erosion at the site. Visitors were also touching the paintings, and the oils smeared from their hands were damaging the paintings over time. Zunis communicated that this place needed more protection. Uh, we uh, asked the Park Service to move the trail uh, with the help of the Conservancy Group, the Grand Canyon Conservancy Group. Uh, uh, they, had, they found a, an individual that donated some, a large portion of money to move that trail. So we were asked to uh, be a part of it, part of uh, working on the trail. And uh, we were there for, I believe, five days, five or six days working on that, that trail, removing all the trails, uh, placing rock along the, the old trail, and then creating a new one down below, and then having the stairway go up to like a, a platform area where you can view the, um, the, the petroglyph. We were there working, uh, and they had us uh, planting rocks and cactuses. <laughs> yeah. that'll, that'll deter people from getting too close. We were, we were moving rocks, and some, you know, we had to dig up uh, like a trench and then place a real big rock and then you know, bury it halfway so they won't move it. And, right. and then we put the cacti uh, in, in uh, certain areas. And uh, um, it came out really good, you know. It came out really good. A lot of uh, people aren't going up and touching the petroglyph no more. The uh, Park Service did an excellent job with, with uh, all that moving a real big old heavy rocks and making a stir, a stir steps going up to the platform, the viewing area. And, and it was a, a really, really a great experience for me. I've, I've never worked, worked uh, down in the, uh, the canyon like that before. And the story of the Zuni panel is just one example of how monitoring trips helped protect cultural sites along the river. And you venture in, in, into these uh, archaeological sites, have respect, treated like you're in a church. Don't pick up hot shards and leave them on pile them up on rocks. Just you may pick it up, put it back where you got it, or just leave it alone, take a picture. And Treat the place as, as if you're in your church, your place of worship. Um, but how did the Zuni people feel when the when the dam was put in? I'm pretty sure that, that the, our tribe didn't seem know about it. But there was no consultations at that time. And um, once it was built, it was built. And, and uh, uh, you know, now they come and ask us if, how we feel about it, you know. And I, I feel a lot of things about it, but what can we do? 
it's already there. We can't tell them to tear it down. But maybe one day uh, they'll take it back. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you just need to, you know, adapt, adapt to uh, to what is placed. Uh, it uh, really messed up the uh, the whole uh, cycle of the river. Uh, a lot of the uh, uh, the Colorado River don't reach Sea uh, of Cortez no more. Not a lot, and uh, as, like the Gila and the Salt River. They don't reach uh, the uh, Sea of Cortez no more. Uh, it's all through because of the dams that are built. And, um, you know, uh, electricity is good. Electricity is good, but, but then it has its, uh, it has its pros and cons. And, and uh, you know, we, we do not block the, our waterways from the headwaters all the way down into the uh, the oceans. We can't. We can't. It's not allowed. It's, it's like impeding the uh, the rains to come. Mm-hmm. You're blocking out the rain when you do that. Uh, a, a big dam like that is holding back all the the rain from coming in. Because all that is supposed to go down to the ocean. And where the the water uh, entities, our ancestors, will come back as as moisture as rain, no, any kind of uh, precipitation. That our ancestors feeding us the gift of life with the gift of life, which is water, and from building all these dams. Along the Colorado River is, is, is a no-no. You know, we, we frown upon that. But but at that time, like I said, there were no consultations with tribes. You know, they all just wanted to do whatever they wanted to do. Uh, Mother Earth was there, there's for the taking, and which we don't see that way. A tribal uh, Native American has never said that this is my land. You know, we don't own it. We're just taking care of it. When when we pass away, we're not going to take it with us. We're not going to pack you in with your with your land and go and send you off to the spirit world. <laughs> no. So it's and. And you know they, like I said, they didn't have any uh, consultations with uh, with any of the tribes, and, and uh, they were placed. And, and now we have to deal with it. We're helping the the uh, uh, park service, and, and uh, we have to helping them how to um, how to make right what they what they did, you know? Each group, um, each government, each um, cultural identity is represented somewhere different, but there is a shared understanding of the importance of Grand Canada as part of all of the traditional landscapes for uh, the Native peoples of the area. I mean, 
Glen Canyon Dam was finished in 1963, so you've got 50 some years now of an experiment, essentially. And many of our tribal colleagues will remind me that they're patient people. They're just going to wait. Every dam that's ever gone in the Colorado River has been eroded around. We just haven't taken a long enough perspective. But we also, as federal agencies, have responsibility to preserve in perpetuity. I mean, the National Park Service in particular, we're the, you know, we're the forever people. You know, these resources are our responsibility forever. Um, as long as the Park Service exists, we will see ourselves as the stewards for these lands. And they're stewards not for our own selves, but for the American people and the tribal groups who have called this, again, this canyon home for thousands of years. We take that responsibility really seriously. When Grand Canyon was designated a national monument in 1908 and a national park in 1919, it was done without the support or consent of the people for whom the canyon was home for time immemorial. Grand Canyon Superintendent Ed Keeble. Echoes of this painful and inequitable history still resonate throughout our park. We must acknowledge these injustices and face them head on. Today, there is much we need to do to heal historic wounds, and we are committed to this work because it is both necessary and right. I know we can achieve these goals as Grand Canyon and the nation grapple with our past and progress ever forward towards building a more perfect union. Um, the most memorable experience I've had down the river is, uh, oh, is all the time. <laughs> Every day is different. You know, the wind may be blowing, you know, you may have standing your breakfast, but, you know, you're down in, uh, in the, the canyon uh, where, where our ancestors lived, you know, you're, you're happy, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> having a great time. My name is Kate, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Behind the Scenery. We gratefully acknowledge the Native peoples on whose ancestral homelands we gather, as well as the diverse and vibrant Native communities who make their home here today.